Uh, well, friends, uh, have you ever had something unexpected happen to you? Have you ever had something unexpected happen to you? Uh, just this week, someone rang the doorbell at my place. Uh, often this time of year, it's usually the postman delivering a card or a courier delivering that last-minute uh, gift that Hewan has purchased online. But uh, when I opened the door this time, a man stood there dressed in black with a box of Cadbury favourites. You'd never guess who it was. It was the local funeral director wanting to give me a Christmas gift. Obviously, funeral directors like being friendly with uh, ministers in the hope that we can bring in more business for them. And I stood there thinking, well, this is a little bit unexpected at Christmas time. It's a bit odd, a bit out of place at this time of year. Uh, if anyone wants a box of Cadbury uh, favourites, um, I'm happy to re-gift it uh, to you. Now, uh, we've been looking at Matthew's Gospel for some time now, and today we come to the final part of this middle section of Matthew's Gospel that we've been looking at this year. And uh, I want to suggest that coming to the end of chapter 17, uh, and hearing what Matthew says to us here, uh, we may find this a little bit unexpected and a little bit odd. For here at the end of chapter 17, he includes this short account that deals with that other certainty in life, and that is the payment of taxes. Now, uh, if you remember, what we've been seeing in the past few weeks is just how glorious uh, Jesus is as the Christ, haven't we? Uh, you know, in, in chapter 16, we saw the penny finally dropping for the Apostle Peter as he confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, God's uh, glorious chosen King who has come to save the world. Uh, further, in chapter 17, we saw that extraordinary incident where Jesus reveals his glory as his sh uh, face shines like the sun and his clothes become dazzling and white. But Jesus also has been saying again and again to his disciples that as this glorious Christ, the job that he has come to do is to come and die, to suffer and die. But why taxes? It seems a little bit unexpected here, doesn't it? In fact, this is the only place in the Gospels where this incident is reported. But why is this here? You know, is it that Matthew, who some of you might know was a tax collector, um, <clears throat> you know, needs to, feels the need to give a bit of tax advice here? You know, the tax return is due and, you know, I want to kind of remind you of, of these things. Well, I want to suggest that Matthew, as we've been seeing all along, is a very careful writer. And uh, the reason why he includes this story here is because he wants to show us something very significant about the kind of death uh, Jesus has been predicting. Now, uh, our passage today then begins with what is essentially a tax dispute. Uh, you can see it there in verse 24, can't you? If you have your Bibles, uh, turn, turn to chapter 17, verse 24, and uh, it says there, When they came to Capernaum, 
the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. Uh, some of you might know that uh, I used to work as a tax consultant for uh, many years. Uh, in other words, I used to spend a lot of time trying to work out uh, how to help very wealthy companies pay as little tax as possible. Uh, I've since repented of such a life, but uh, as you can imagine, I've seen a few tax disputes in my time. You know, I would lodge a tax return for, uh, you know, wealthy companies or individuals, and then uh, the tax office would come back and question, you know, how come this wealthy company or tax re- uh, uh, or, or individual can pay such little tax? Now, that's kind of what you see going on here, isn't it? Uh, the tax authorities want to question the tax practices of Jesus. But rather than approaching him directly, well, they go to his disciples and they begin to question Peter, who uh, I'm assuming they approach because he's one of the leaders. Um, they begin to question him about the tax practices of Jesus. Uh, the two drachma tax that you see there was not a secular tax. Uh, It wasn't a secular tax that was paid to the Romans who were ruling Israel at the time, but rather it was a Jewish tax of half a shekel, which was based loosely on a part of the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 30, which imposed a tax on Jews uh, to raise money for the functioning of the the Jewish temple. Uh, Half a shekel in Jewish money was roughly equivalent to two drachmas, which was the the going currency of the day. Uh, Incidentally, this is why you see money changes uh, at the temple later on in the gospel, where, you know, that famous incident where Jesus overturns the the, the tables of the money changers? Uh, Well, they were there to, to, uh, you know, uh, change currency so that people could pay this tax at the temple. Uh, It's just that they probably pocketed a healthy... um, profit for themselves in the process, which is why Jesus is so furious and says that, you know, you've turned uh, God's temple into a den of robbers. But you'll see there that the question to Peter is whether Jesus pays this tax or not. And Peter answers, yes. Now, we don't know whether Peter says this because he knew Jesus paid the tax or or whether he just says this unknowingly and unthinkingly. Uh, I don't think it matters too much. But uh, if the past few chapters are anything to go by, I wouldn't be surprised if if Peter just says this without knowing, you know, what's really going on. Now, uh, this might have been the end of the matter, but it seems that uh, a little bit later on, Jesus also has something to teach Peter about this tax. Uh, What does he want to teach Peter? Well, Jesus wants Peter to know that he is not obligated to pay this tax. Why? Well, it's as we've heard in the kids' talk, it's because he is God's son. Uh, You can see this in what Jesus says to Peter uh, when Peter finally comes to the house that Jesus is staying at. Uh, It says there in the second sentence of verse 25, And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? 
from their sons or from others. And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Uh, Now, friends, I'm told that in England, um, Prince Charles actually voluntarily pays tax. Uh, In fact, uh, all the royal family members pay some degree of tax. But uh, that's because in uh, England itself is a constitutional monarchy where the power of the king or queen is severely restricted. However, in absolute monarchies, such as uh, Brunei or Saudi Arabia or Oman, well, the king and his princes do not pay tax. Uh, Rather, it's the subjects of the kingdom who pay the tax in order to belong to the kingdom. And uh, that's what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? The temple tax was for the functioning of the temple, but who is the God of the temple? Well, the God of the temple is is Jesus' father. And Jesus is none other than the son of that living God himself. And that's why Jesus is free from this obligation of paying the tax. Peter has it wrong, as usual. Uh, But friends, here's the thing. Even though Jesus is free from this tax, uh, did you notice that nevertheless he agrees to pay it? Uh, You can see this in what Jesus says to Peter from verse 27. From uh, verse 27. However, not to give offence to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Uh, Why does Jesus arrange to pay this tax through such miraculous means, I wonder? Uh, Why does Jesus agree to pay the tax, even though, as we've just learnt, he is free from the obligation? Well, the passage itself says that it's because Jesus didn't want to give offence to the tax collectors. But what does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus was afraid of offending people? Does it mean that he was simply a people pleaser whose primary motivation was to not offend other people or hurt their feelings? Well, it doesn't seem to fit the portrait of of Jesus up until this point, does it? For do you remember in chapter 12 what Jesus does? Jesus strongly challenges the understanding uh, of the Sabbath laws that was held by the religious leaders of his day, such that they, the religious leaders begin to conspire about how they might kill him, kill Jesus. So offended were they. And further in chapter 15, if you remember, he, he calls the religious leaders hypocrites because, you know, they, they wanted to look religious on the outside, but inside their hearts were very far from God. He challenges their understanding of themselves and their own hearts such that we are told that these religious leaders walked away from Jesus deeply offended. Now, Jesus is not afraid of offending people. But what I think is going on here is that while Jesus is not afraid to offend people where the gospel is at stake... Well, he is equally willing to sacrifice his 
own freedoms on lesser issues so that people may not be hindered unnecessarily from coming to him and entering the kingdom of heaven. Do you see that? I might say that again because it's very important. While Jesus is not afraid to offend people where the gospel is at stake, on lesser issues, he's very willing to sacrifice his own freedom so that people can come into the kingdom. The word for offend literally means to put a stumbling block in front of someone, causing them to fall. You see, Jesus doesn't want to unnecessarily put obstacles in the way of people coming to him and finding life in his kingdom. How wonderful that we have a king like this, friends, who is so loving that he is willing to give of himself, give of his own freedoms in order for others to come to him. You know, it's a bit like what the Apostle says in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, Apostle Paul says, rather, in 1 Corinthians 8, isn't it? If you are familiar with that passage, uh, you will know that Paul knows that it is not wrong to eat meat which has been sacrificed to idols, which uh, was a common practice in the first century. Uh, why? <clears throat> well, it's because Paul knows that there is no such thing as idols in this world. And so eating food that has been sacrificed to idols is neither here nor there as a Christian. We're free to do it, he says. And yet, because he knows that there are Christian brothers and sisters who have been saved out of pagan idol worship, people who may still think that it is wrong to eat such meat. Well, he says in verse 13 of chapter 8 in 1 Corinthians, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. Um, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. In other words, uh, my eating meat may tempt my Christian brother or sister to do what they think is wrong in God's eyes and so destroy them. And so, if my freedom to eat meat can have that kind of effect on another person, well, I'm going to be a vegetarian for the rest of my life, says Paul. Bring on the tofu burgers, he says. Now, uh, we might laugh at this, but I want you to see the gravity of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. I mean, would you give up eating meat for the rest of your life for the sake of another person and their eternal welfare? That's a deeply challenging thing because, you know, many of us are, are very used to giving up uh, small things from time to time for the sake of others. Uh, but the question that Paul asks is, are you willing to live a lifestyle where you are giving up your freedoms, your cherished freedoms, so that other people can be helped to come to Jesus and to know him and to find life in him? How might we do this? Well, uh, here are a few things I've observed uh, some of my Christian friends uh, doing over the years. Um, <clears throat> I know a family who comes early to church every week. And uh, because they come early to church, well, they are free to park their car 
as close to church as possible, aren't they? But you know what they do? They give up that freedom and they uh, usually park a block away so that it will be easier for others, perhaps somebody who is not as mobile, make it easier for them to come to church and hear God's word each week. Now, I don't want us to go on a bit of a witch hunt today and see you know, who's parked outside the front, but you see my point, don't you? Um, I know a person who makes it their ministry to come along to each newcomer course that the church runs. You know, he is free to not come along to these courses because he himself is not a newcomer at church, and uh, he's generally across the the Bible study we we do for newcomers, which is a very introductory Bible study. But because he now wants to love new people and help them to know Jesus, well, he gives up his freedom and uh, participates often in newcomer courses at church. That's giving up your freedom out of love for others, isn't it? I have a wealthy friend who is in a very high-paying job. You know, uh, God has blessed him with lots of money, and he is free to use that money uh, the way he wants. But, you know, he knows that there are people at church who have been saved out of a life of materialism and are trying very hard not to idolize money. And so he has decided to give up his freedom to drive the latest luxury car and not to send photos of the latest luxury holiday to other people at church so that he may not be a stumbling block to others. I mean, there will be millions of ways in which we can give up our freedoms in order to love others and remove stumbling blocks to Jesus in our lives. But the more fundamental question I want to ask each of us this morning is, is your Christianity and my Christianity simply about ourselves and our freedoms or like Jesus are we people who will love others and learn to give up our freedoms another person I I know uh, just come to me is giving up some of his long service leave so that he could go on mission um, uh, somewhere else in the country so that he might help others to come to know Jesus. That's giving up your freedom, isn't it? Is your Christianity and my Christianity simply about insisting on our freedoms or is it about giving up our freedoms for the sake of others? Jesus is the one who gives up his freedom to not pay tax in order not to put an obstacle to these tax collectors coming into the kingdom. Later on, we learn that he is the one who gives up the freedom of God himself in order to die on the cross so that other people might, might come to salvation. The Apostle Paul says at the end of chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians, and so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, he says, but that of many, 
that they may be saved? Is your Christianity simply about yourself? Or is it about giving up our freedoms for the sake of others? I wonder what are the things that we can give up so that we might remove obstacles for other people growing in their relationship with Jesus. Uh, Perhaps that's a conversation that we can have with one another over morning tea this morning. And so, Jesus is free to not pay this tax, and yet he chooses to pay the tax, doesn't he? However, notice that he goes about it in a very miraculous way here in this passage. That is, he tells Peter to go fishing, and he says that the first fish that he catches will have a shekel in its mouth, which will be enough to pay the tax for both Jesus as well as Peter. Uh, Half a shekel uh, was two drachmas, and so one shekel was the equivalent of four drachmas, which was enough for Jesus as well as Peter. Uh, Now, friends, uh, it is curious, isn't it, that while Jesus tells Peter to pay the tax in this way, uh, the miracle itself is not reported in this passage. Did you notice that? In other words, unlike all the other miracles of Jesus that we have seen along the way, uh, this miracle is implied rather than reported. However, because it is not reported, uh, some sceptical Bible scholars uh, claim that this miracle did not actually happen. Uh, You know, I don't know whether you've noticed, but so many people, uh, including people who claim to be Christians, often deny the miracles that they read about in the Bible. Have you uh, come across that uh, from people that you know? Uh, Each Christmas, for example, you will find that there is some liberal Christian minister out there who will come out publicly and deny things like the virgin birth of Jesus or other such miracles in the Bible because they simply do not believe in them. It's a very serious thing because to deny that God can do miracles means that, logically speaking, you begin to deny the greatest miracle of all, which is the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what the Bible says is that if you deny the physical resurrection of Jesus, then you have denied what is at the very heart of Christianity and you have no hope in this world. However, I think many people deny miracles simply because miracles are not part of our ordinary experience of the world, is it? In fact, That's part of the point of miracles, that it doesn't happen all the time. However, to deny everything that we have not experienced for ourselves is a pretty untenable position. Uh, Do you know, for example, that most people in England did not believe that the platypus was real? Uh, You know, the first explorers who came to Australia reported that they had seen a creature with a bill that looked like a duck and that laid eggs like a reptile, but had fur and was warm-blooded like a mammal. No one believed it. Why? Well, because no one had seen one before. It wasn't until they actually shot a platypus and brought it back to England that people believed. Uh, In a similar way, people 
say miracles are not in my experience of the world and so I just can't believe in things like that. Now, often these people also make the a priori assumption that God doesn't exist. A God who can suspend the natural workings of the world and therefore what they do is they choose, uh, close themselves to the possibility of miracles without even looking at the evidence. However, in this passage, did you notice that Jesus is presented as very godlike? He knows Peter's conversation with the tax collectors, uh, even though he wasn't there, for example. And we've seen all along, haven't we, that Jesus has been doing miracle after miracle in full view of them all. He's been healing the sick, he's been calming the storm, he's been feeding the hungry, yes, he's even been raising the dead. And so it's not too much of a leap to see that Jesus paid the tax uh, in this miraculous way. But why is this passage about taxes really here? Uh, It still seems unexpected and a bit odd, doesn't it, that Matthew would put this account here? Well, when we don't understand something in the Bible... It's often the case that we find the answers in another part of the Bible. Uh, It's the idea that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so, friends, um, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 30, um, or um, I've actually given you a printout of the passage uh, in your bulletins if you have it there. And uh, you can see that this is the Old Testament passage that the temple tax was based on. But what was this temple tax? Well, you can see there in verse 12 that it was paid as a ransom price to save God's people from God's anger at sin expressed in plagues. Uh, Just like uh, God sent the plagues to sinful Egypt. Uh, In verse 13, the amount of the tax was half a shekel, which was equivalent to two drachmas. In verse 14, every person 20 years and and up had to pay this tax. In verse 15, you can see that both rich and poor alike had to pay this tax because this was not a tax on wealth, but a tax that brought atonement, notice, with God. In other words, it brought forgiveness and oneness with God, which is what the word atonement means, at one meant. And so why does Matthew's Gospel have this bit about this tax? Well, it's because it explains what Jesus will do at the cross and why that will be so glorious. For on the cross, Jesus will pay the the ransom price for sinners like Peter and for sinners like you and me in order to save us from God's judgment. He will do it so that we might be forgiven of our sin and our ignorance of God and our rebellion and lack of love. And we will be made one with God. Our sins will be atoned for both now and forever. Jesus was the only one who was free from having to pay this tax. 
He was also the one who was the only one who was free from having to pay a price to God for sin, for he was sinless. But he is the one who will give up this freedom and die in order to save us. And friends, how wonderful that Jesus pays the tax for Peter here as a foretaste of what he will do at the cross. How wonderful that Jesus pays for us who trust him our ransom price for our sin so that we will not have to pay the price that we were obligated to pay for ourselves. Hallelujah. What a saviour we have in Jesus. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And we thank you especially for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in his kindness and his mercy, he went to the cross for us. Father, we know that he was not obligated to die for us, for he was sinless. And yet we thank you that out of his love, he turned his back on his freedoms and his privileges as your son to die for us on the cross so that we might be truly free. And Father, we are sorry for the many times that we have simply used our freedoms for ourselves even though we belong to him. We are sorry for our selfishness and for our disregard for others in our use of freedoms. We pray for your forgiveness and ask that you might change us so that we would be more like Jesus. Help us to be those who would do all that we get, can, even to give up some of our cherished freedoms, if it means that others can come to know Jesus and grow in their relationship with him. For we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.